Sean and Ed's do baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed. And we're bringing you some baseball history on this wonderful May day, whatever date this comes out on. That's right. <laughs> on this May date, we're a bi-weekly baseball history podcast where the story catcher doesn't know what the story pitcher is going to be telling them. That's right. And I am going to sit back and, and, and catch today, I guess. I, I was going to say, you need, it seems like you need some R&R today. So you can sit back and relax and uh, just hear this story. I am going to talk less than less than regular, let's just say. I don't know. I mean, you might be uh, not be able to resist jumping in, I think, <laughs> at a few points in this one. But I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm jumping ahead myself. Well, I would just say to the listeners, yeah, I'm a little bit... My voice is a little hoarse. I uh, I uh, coached about four baseball games in the last two days, so uh, there was a really bad call that I was upset about, and uh, I uh, voiced my opinion. Did you get yourself kicked out? No. But nice. But you managed to have enough restraint to... Oh, no, I always... Uh, I try not to, but I believe what I screamed from the third base coach box was not right now <laughs> when uh, when a, a, a very low pitch was called a strike at a very important part in the game. So I think I screamed not right now, <laughs> you know, from about 50 feet away several times at you this felt that that was not a, a good time to make that sort of call oh it was terrible let's move okay. forward okay. let's move i'm excited forward. to hear this before we before we tune into your story which i'm so excited to hear you've been giving me some teasers and i have no idea uh but follow us on twitter at doing baseball instagram at doing dot baseball give us a like or a follow do whatever you can for us honestly we we love it we love doing this we got lots of stories to come and I'm excited for this one. Yeah, thank you for uh, listening to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and uh, Podbean. Of course, uh, give us a rating and review and encourage your friends to find us there, too. It uh, gets us out in front of other listeners. We would love it so much. And, of course, thank you for listening. Yeah, always. So, always. All right, Edzie, wind it up. Let's go. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. Okay, well, I'm going to... This, this story that I'm going to tell today is about a guy who he altered the course of history... All history? All together. Whoa. Not even baseball history. Whoa. And I got to say that this guy is actually sort of well covered. I was surprised how well covered he was. I'd actually never heard of the guy. Okay. And, and because of that, I'm going to hope that you've also never heard of the guy. But okay. um, it, it, it is it, he is kind of well covered, as I mentioned. Uh, I found a few podcast episodes already about him, but they're, they're a few years old. So this guy hasn't been in the spotlight, per se, in the, the last few years. But uh, I guess before I get started, I, I will kind of cite those sources or whatever there were a few podcasts that i really liked about him one particularly uh of the another baseball history podcast called rounders nice and uh another one profiles of eccentricity mm-hmm. so that maybe gives you a little teaser of what kind of person uh, this guy is yep. also another one called footnoting history and then another couple main sources that i've 
covered for the story of this was the Sabre article by Ralph Berger, yeah. which is a great uh, coverage on him. And then also there's a great biography that sort of like your uh, Ty Cobb episode that we just covered. Yeah. Uh, I didn't read the entire book. Yeah. I have it on audiobook and I've listened to you know, a okay. good portion of it, but I, I, I read a lot of articles that reference this particular biography. Well, so. to give people perspective, right, you know, the Chalmers race episode he's referred to this way, these scripts are seven, eight, nine pages long. If you want to read a 400-page book, <laughs> there is a lot of more information out yeah. there on these subjects than what we give you in some cases. In some cases, I think we do a pretty good job shedding some light, but I'm excited to hear this still. Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm just gonna sit. Also, I'm gonna start this by saying that John Kieran of the New York Times once said that this guy was the most scholarly athlete I ever knew. Okay, and the story begins uh, actually um, in 1894 in New York when Bernard Berg arrived in New York City. Okay, and he had traveled from the Ukraine where he was a druggist. A druggist. Yeah. yeah. Just going around drugging people. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's Bernard. <laughs> He's, he goes around stabbing people in the neck, uh, giving them free inoculations. <laughs> so uh, he ha- apparently had two children already before leaving the Ukraine with his wife, Rose Tashker. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were named Samuel and Ethel. I'm not sure of their ages, but they must have been of a decent age because according to Berg's Saber bio by Ralph Berger, Rose and the two children eventually moved to New York two years later uh, and joined Bernard in 1896 when Samuel had saved enough money. But I, I think that could be a mistake. I think maybe he meant uh, Bernard yeah, instead. Okay. All right. Um, but anyway, so uh, Bernard's now got his wife and his two kids with him in New York, and mm-hmm. he's set some money aside. They're scraping every penny they can, and they open their own laundry. And uh, on the side, at night, uh, he was, you know, very ambitious, and he was also going to the Columbia College of Pharmacy. I guess his druggist uh, yeah. certificate or whatever, diploma, PhD, wasn't, uh, didn't qualify in America, so. Well, that's often how we treat people coming out, oh, what did you do? Pharmacy. Laundry's in big demand right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe you could go to Columbia. Oh, well, that's good for him, though. That's yeah. good. So, so he, he's he's working, uh, scraping by, doing the laundry stuff, but also studying to get his, his degree. Yeah. So by the time the family welcomed their third child, Morris, or possibly Moses, okay. most of the records uh, say Morris, <laughs> but apparently his actual birth certificate says Moses. So. <laughs> okay. Did you see the actual birth certificate? No, I okay. didn't. So just uh, so one of the accounts. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Breaking some news. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, but it, like I say, by the time they welcomed their third child, Morris, Bernard became a pharmacist. Mm-hmm. And this was in 1902. And this is the guy that we're focusing on is, is Morris Moses. Okay. Or for the sake of our story, Mo Berg. Oh. Okay. Have you heard of Mo Berg? I might have. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Mo Berg, born in Manhattan, March 2nd, 1902. Yep. So, as I mentioned, he's born to the these Russian uh, or Ukrainian Jewish yeah, American immigrant parents. Don't mix that up right yeah. now, yeah. please. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> Ukrainian. Ukrainian Jewish uh, parents. So. Uh-huh. Uh, he was born in a cold water tenement, so there's no hot water in the place. They they got a, I, 
I don't know if they have to, you know, necessarily light a fire to boil their water, but they have to boil their water to have a hot bath and stuff like that. So, uh, but eventually, uh, when Mo was very young, the family moved to Newark, Newark, New Jersey in the Roseville section of the city when Mo was just nine months old. Uh, and the reason was that so that Bernard could open his own pharmacy. So he got his degree and now he was a pharmacist and he was, you know, moving to the suburbs, I guess. He's so, moving so on up. Not really the suburbs, but I guess. A nice little neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't really like cover it too much, but apparently the, the Bergs moved to, uh, per, like actually sought out living in a more Protestant, uh, Area? neighborhood yeah i think they were kind of like not necessarily ashamed but yeah. like just like kind of didn't want to like you know necessarily flaunt their jewishness or whatever okay all right yeah so they're ukrainian jewish people and they're like let's go they they they're actively searching for a place where they feel accepted more or less yes okay yes yeah so maybe that's also possibly why it's morris in most of the accounts and oh. not moses yeah i think you made a pretty good connection <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 so the berg family set down their roots and in, in roseville and it was here that mo grew up and like most American boys, Mo Berg played baseball. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And when he was young, he played his first organized baseball with the Roseville Methodist Episcopal Church. So there was no Jewish youth uh, leagues for this for this guy to play in. So He joins the church league. Yeah. So okay. I guess you'd have to have been Methodist in order to play for this church team. Did he convert to play on a children's baseball team? <laughs> no, he didn't. He did not convert. <laughs> he did not convert. But because he had an obviously Jewish name of Morris, possibly Moses Bird, yeah. he invented the pseudonym for himself and it was Runt Wolf. <laughs> Yeah, runt wolf. Runt? How do you spell runt? Like you would think you would spell it, R-U-N-T. Oh man, as a coach, I would be terrified to yell that child's name in open field. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I feel like it may have been like a, like a sort of an ironic name because yeah. I don't know what he was like as a kid. I don't know what size he was, but he eventually grew to be six foot one and 185 pounds. A big, so big he'd be boy. a big boy at this time. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it was a very conspicuous fake name. <laughs> yes. You know, like <laughs> this is a catcher. Right. <laughs> couldn't just go with like John Smith or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you'll see later that uh, Moberg may not have ever been a very con- inconspicuous character despite the fact that it was an integral part of his career okay. or his later career right. i'm digressing slightly but right. anyway see what you're doing. um so uh schooling was important in the berg family moe's older siblings both went on to higher education samuel became a doctor and ethel became a school teacher and moe himself as a child was quite studious the family encouraged him to become a lawyer and so that's what he did Okay. Okay. He was, but in high school, anyway, he was an all-city third baseman for Behringer High School, and he graduated there at 16. Oh, shit. Yeah, so he graduates early. So he can play the hot corner, and he's smart as shit. That's right. There we go. Yeah, very smart guy. So he graduates at 16, like I said, and he immediately enrolls in New York University a year later. Uh I guess not. That's not immediately, but, you know. So he goes to uh, NYU at uh, 17, and then eventually transferred to Princeton a year after that. 
Okay. So he's, you know, going to some prestigious schools here. Yeah. So Berg was a little bit of a loner at Princeton. Mm -hmm. He had friends from the baseball team, but, you know, people being kind of shitty as they are excluded Berg from the social circles. Yeah. Was it, do, do you think that's because of his, like, him being a bit of a loner or because of his background? Or Well, apparently, like, throughout his whole life, he was like sort of a loner and kind of okay. a mysterious character but uh, I'm going to mention here that it was sort of because not just because of his you know religious yeah. uh you know whatever uh it was also like his his uh economic standing uh, or whatever yeah, he wasn't one of the he was an immigrant child Yes. So you go yeah. to Princeton and there's all these yeah. hoity toity families. Exactly. So it's an Ivy yeah. League school yeah. attended by primarily rich Protestant kids. Yeah. So, and oh. Berg was a poor Jewish kid. So, you know, a lot of the, you know, social clubs were exclusionary towards him. But also, once again, touching upon why his family chose the neighborhood they did. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it looked better on school applications. Yeah, too. possibly. Yeah. 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 He could have applied as Runt Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> He's a genius. He graduated by 16. <laughs> uh, so, as I mentioned, Berg did make friends and find some acceptance playing on the Princeton Nine. Okay. He played there for three years. He captained the team in his final season and was the star shortstop. That year was the best that Princeton had ever had. And they won 18 straight games at one point that year. That was pretty darn good. Yeah. Uh, Berg studied classical and Romance languages, Greek, Latin, French, Italian, Spanish, and even studied some German and Sanskrit. Oh, he's like he was apparently by you know by you know the end of his life like fluent in like a, a dozen languages I or so. I can't do it. What? Just learn a new language. I know it's so difficult. I, I mean, I think I could if I moved to Paris or or fully Quebec immersed City. yourself. Yeah, but I can't just be like in Princeton, New Jersey, like speaking Greek. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and this actually, the languages came in handy because Berg and second baseman Crosnin would uh, Crosnin Cooper would communicate plays in Latin with an opposing player on second base. That is such an Ivy League move. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Coach, what's happening? They're speaking Latin, son. Don't worry. You didn't get into that school. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Berg graduated with honors, 24th out of 20, 211 in his class in 1923. Mm -hmm. But he never returned for any class reunions as his time at Princeton had left a bitter taste in his mouth. Obviously from the exclusion in general, but one particular event specifically rubbed Berg the wrong way. A teammate of Moe's was invited to join one of Prince, Princeton's prestigious dining clubs. Mm -hmm. I guess like a frat, I guess. Yes. Fraternity or whatever. More roasted chickens, though. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, he was accepted on the condition that his friend Moe Berg be accepted into the club as well. Mm. But uh, the club reluctantly agreed under the condition that Berg didn't bring any more Jews to the club. <laughs> Listen, we're okay with what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's our token guy. Jesus. The one Jew club. Yeah. Oh my God, that's <laughs> awful. Yeah. So Berg said, fuck you. Good for him. Yeah. And the teammate also said, fuck you. Good for him. Uh, but Berg convinced his buddy to join anyways because he didn't want to 
feel responsible for, you know, his buddy, you know, having a lower social standing or whatever. Listen, so you got to take care of your future family and grandchildren. Go hang out with the anti-Semites. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about me. But basically at this point, Bo- Moberg is like, fuck this place. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, anyway, uh, but during the baseball time, uh, June 26, 1923, before he graduates and leaves and never comes back, Princeton lost 5-3 to three to Yale, who claimed the Big Three title, but Berg went 2-4 for four that day with a double and made several starred plays at shortstop. Mm-hmm. The Giants and Robin's scouts were present and coincidentally were looking for specifically Jewish players to pique the interests of the New York Jewish communities. Oh, I mean, oh, yep. Yeah? Yep. I mean, that's, uh, I didn't know where you were going with that, but I guess... Good marketing? I guess. (laughs) I am... uh, Okay, I don't know how I feel about that one. Let's continue. Yeah, so, but the Giants already had two future Hall of Fame shortstop in Dave Beauty Bancroft and Travis Jackson. Mm-hmm. So uh, Berg had a better chance to play with the mediocre Brooklyn squad. So after graduating in 1923, Berg was pursued and signed by Wilbert Robinson's Brooklyn Robins for $5,000. Mm-hmm. So he missed out on Casey Stangle and Ruth Law's prank on Robinson by a few years. Oh, that's you know, too bad. That was 1915. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but he batted a paltry 186 in his first season in the big leagues. So you'd think that wouldn't be good enough for a young man to stick around. And it wasn't. No. You know? So, you know, at this point in his career, Berg is feeling slightly torn between two paths in life. He loves baseball. And he wants to continue to pursue it. And his family is really pushing for the lawyer path. Right? His father, like, did not approve of the baseball whatsoever. <laughs> and he, like, said, I'll never come and see you play. Oh, dear. You know, so, like, they don't have a good like, right relationship. From the start? Going, essentially, yeah. Oh, He's like, no, God. you're being a lawyer and I'm not coming to your games ever. Fuck you. Yeah, you go play your games and then we'll talk when you're, yeah, you're playing doing the baseball stuff. behind my back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's the devil. It's the devil. What did I tell you, Runt? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your name's Runt. Your name's Runt. So he sought the advice of a well-respected fellow lawyer named Dutch Carter, mm-hmm. who told him that there would be plenty of time to practice law once his baseball career was over. Uh, Dutch himself wished to be a ball player and followed his family wishes for him to be a lawyer, and he'd always regretted giving up the game. Nice. So he has like the the old like caretaker from like teen movies. <laughs> yeah. It's like son, yeah. you're not gonna want to quit for your senior year. <laughs> I quit in my senior year. <laughs> and look at me. <laughs> <laughs> so Berg decided to continue with baseball while chipping away at his law degree. Good for him. He eventually graduated from Columbia in 1930. So yeah. he did it, you know. Yeah. Uh, Berg also apparently turned down an opportunity to teach romance languages at Princeton. Mm-hmm. So he's obviously very committed to baseball because, you know, I imagine those would, you know, be much more secure careers than baseball. I, I would assume, but I like that this guy kind of said that there's, you know, there's life after baseball. Like you can kind of do both. I think a lot of people, a lot of people get 
worried that what they're doing at like 25 is you know you just that's like the end of it mm -hmm. so yeah it's just like yeah go go do your thing if you got a shot go do it whatever mm -hmm. yeah so he plays this first season and then immediately after the first season was when berg took his first trip abroad Ooh. and he sailed from new york to paris he found an apartment in the latin quarter overlooking the sorbonne mm -hmm. which is the university okay where he enrolled in 32 classes. So That's he's, all. you know, he loves learning. He's a lifelong learner, this guy. That's what I'm trying to say. 32 classes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, in the off season. Just trying to <laughs> get educated in the off season. <laughs> Just showing Just up in October up. until <laughs> February. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. It was here in Paris that he developed somewhat of a strange habit. He would read several newspapers a day. That's not that weird, is it? I mean, at the time, you know, I mean, that's a lot of reading. You have to have a pretty good lifestyle to be able to have the time, I guess, to read several newspapers a day. True, but... Yeah, I mean, that's it's pretty not, eccentric. It's, still, like, I, 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 yeah, yeah. I guess so, but really, like, it's not that weird of an activity to read a newspaper is basically all I'm saying. No, it's not. No, I agree with you. It's it's some people, like, that's the equivalent of someone being like, they watch CNN all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, yeah, he's reading the news yeah. all day. Well, is it weird, Sean, weird to consider a newspaper alive and refuse to let any else read it before you or you considered it dead and would require a new newspaper okay what <laughs> <laughs> so, so he, he would consider he, his newspapers alive like i would have the newspaper and he wouldn't want to read it if it was dead and if you touched it that made it dead so like like no one was allowed to touch his fucking newspaper before you read it okay so he was very territorial about his newspapers yeah apparently even in snowstorms berg would venture out for fresh papers if someone had touched his copies before he read them so this guy seems very easy to fuck with. <laughs> oh my god, so easy to fuck with. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's some that's some pretty, pretty weird uh, <laughs> behavior. Yeah. So so he's you know anyway back to his baseball shit right. Yeah. As I mentioned, Berg couldn't hit. No. Uh, he was a shortstop at this point. Still, in 1924, he spent the season with Minneapolis and Toledo in the minor leagues. Uh, American Association, and he had an average of 264. So he goes down, and he's doing a little better, but, you know, at this time, 264 is still not considered no, very no, good. No, 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 It's, uh, uh, if you're doing that in the majors, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in 1925, he went to the International League where he was with Redding, and he batted 311. So he's doing a little better in that league. Uh, that earned him another chance in the majors. So in 1926, Berg lands with the White Sox in the American League and gets himself into 41 games. But he only bats 211. It seems like he's about to head back down, but he doesn't. And in 1927, something happened that would help Berg extend his career at least another decade. Okay. So he's a shortstop, remember? Yeah. Right. He's a shitty hitting shortstop. Yeah, which was kind of acceptable back then, but still, right. you were looking for value at that position. Right. And so Chicago has these two main catchers, Buck Krause and Harry McCurdy, and even had a backup plan in that their player manager, Ray Schalk, was the reserve catcher. Imagine pitching to your manager. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the high-pressure situation, no matter what inning it was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... 
Ray Schalk at this point, though, was on the IL with a broken thumb, and Buck Krause was also hurt. Ooh. So all they've got is McCurdy. And then in one game, a Boston batter accidentally slashed McCurdy's hand, leaving the White Sox without a suitable catcher. Shulk was in a panic and called to his bench, quote, Can any of you fellas catch? <laughs> Mo piped up and said that he used to think he could. <laughs> and Shulk asked, Who told him that he couldn't? And Berg told him, My high school coach. <laughs> <laughs> And according to Berger's Sabre account, Schalk assured Mo that he'd be much obliged if he could go out and prove his former coach wrong. There you go. <laughs> so, Merg, so Mo Berg strapped on the catcher's gear, proved that he could, in fact, catch. Wow. As mentioned before, he was a bit of a slouch with the bat. He had a lifetime average of 243 with only six home runs lifetime. But it's more acceptable if you're a catcher. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And Because he, he had a strong arm and he could throw out even the league's fastest base runners. There you go. Uh, he was known for his good defense and he was also very astute at game calling. You know, he was well-educated, so he's very studious of batters, you know, in the same way that he studied books and stuff. Okay, Side note here. I don't know why I'm I'm thinking about this, but go ahead. You know how the catcher's equipment's called the tools of ignorance? Yeah. Yeah, have I told you this? I, I don't I it? don't know this story, but yes, I've I've heard no, the phrase. I, I just love it. Yeah, okay. So you know why it's called that. Do you know why? No. No. Because you need to be very smart to play catcher. Right. But you're an idiot to get back there. <laughs> yeah. So you must be ignorant. Right. Yes. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. So he's well-educated, as I said, studious of batters, observant of players' behavior, mm -hmm. and he spoke many languages. Yeah. You know, so, you know, able to deceive guys very easily there. He just starts screaming in Greek behind him. <laughs> Yeah. Or German. <laughs> So because of these attributes behind the plate, it put Mo Berg in high demand around the league. Holy crap. Uh, so to prepare for the season in 1928, Berg went to the Adirondack Mountains to work at a lumber camp, and he reported to spring training in excellent shape and had been the clear starting catcher by the end of the season. Holy shit. So he, like, goes up into the mountains and rocky trains, you know? Like, fights bears and shit. Yeah, this, is, this is, what, 1932? 28. 1928. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Just, no. just in, like, the spring of 1928. Uh, if we get a time machine, we're going back. A little black and white. <laughs> Filming Moberg. <laughs> Doing the rocky training, chopping down trees one by one, one hack. That's right. So, uh... You know, here's an example of his defense that year. He led all AL catchers in caught stealing percentage with a 60.9%. He was third in double plays by a catcher with eight and fifth in catcher assists with 52. Whoa. He bat 246 and had a career high 16 doubles. So that's not bad. That's, that's pretty a pretty respectable year. serviceable catcher. Yeah. You put up with the lack of offense with that. And as I say, he put up, you know, he didn't put up terrible numbers. At, yeah, that's great. That's mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. uh, during this, during all this, as I mentioned before, Berg is working to become a lawyer, and he passed the bar exam in 1929, but he failed evidence and had to repeat it the next year, but received his Bachelor of Laws on February 26, 1930. So that's the date he officially becomes a lawyer. But 
rewind a bit again. In the 1929 season, Berg was again stellar defensively. He was second in double plays and assists, mm -hmm. third in caught base runners, fourth in percentage, and had his best year at the bat with the 287 average and 47 RBIs. This was despite an injury he sustained on April 6th in an exhibition game versus the Little Rock Travelers where he tore a knee ligament when his spikes got stuck trying to change directions on the base paths, I assume. Jesus. So he tore his... Uh, imagine, like, based on the amount of, like, you know, that he was still second and, you know, third and caught base runners, he still must have, like, played quite a few games that season yeah. so i imagine he's like playing through this injury that's ridiculous and it you know catches up to him because the next season in 1930 berg only got into 20 games because of his knee and he hit just 115 yeah well when you're missing some ligaments <laughs> yeah, yeah it makes a big difference yeah you know uh in the off season berg took a job with the respected wall street law firm satterley and canfield Imagine applying for that job. What have you done? Well, <laughs> I play professional baseball. Well, I and hit 311 last year. I chopped down trees in the off-season in <laughs> Appalachia. <laughs> I speak several languages. <laughs> <laughs> so that, uh, that firm is still around today. It's now Saturday, Stevens, Burke, and Burke. Burke and Burke. Let's had to make sure both Burks get the <laughs> Of course, there. of course. <laughs> but, uh, Burke squared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So the White Sox aren't getting much production out of Berg, and they place him on waivers, and on April 2nd, 1931, he is acquired by the Cleveland Indians. Uh. But he only got into 13 at-bats in 10 games. He only got one hit, so Cleveland granted Moe his unconditional release in January of 1932, and it seems Moe is probably done with Major League Baseball. You'd think so, right? Well, you've had your baseball... Now you're a lawyer. I mean, you have several other opportunities. Mm -hmm. You don't have to grind it out without knee ligaments for uh, squatting. I'm just taking this in. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit, you're a catcher yeah. without oh, knee ligaments. Oh, yeah. oh, why didn't I react like this earlier? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, oh my God. But he goes back. Yeah. He goes back he in. In 1932, he, he was invited to camp by Clark Griffith owner of the Washington Senators, who was looking for a catcher, which were hard to come by. Yeah. So he made the team, and he managed to get into 75 games that year when Race Roy Spencer went on the IL and committed, and he committed no errors and was second in catcher double plays and caught stealing percentage, throwing out 35 would-be base stealers while batting 236. Nice. So, you know, he's got another decent year in there. Well, I mean, the most important, it sounds like he's just a, got a great arm from playing third base and shortstop growing up and yeah. just guns guys. Yeah. And at this time, everybody thinks that stolen bases are amazing and everyone should just run. Yeah. So he gets lots of chances to look like a superstar. Exactly. Even though otherwise he's not that great. Yeah. Uh, so during the winter of 1932, Herb Hunter, who was a retired ball player, was arranging these baseball seminars at Japanese universities. Mm -hmm. uh, he had uh, these seminars arranged at, I'm going to butcher some Japanese words here, uh, Meiji, okay. Waseda, okay. Rikio, Todai, Hosai, and Keio. 
Uh, That's the best I can do. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, which we're all members of the Tokyo Big Six Baseball League. Oh. Which, if you don't know, is an intercollegiate league founded in 1925. Oh, yes. So, I, yeah, I think I've heard of that one. Yeah. Definitely. So, so there, so, you know, this, I guess, is, you know, a few years in, about seven years into their existence, and this guy's, like, organized these tours to go and teach them how to play baseball. Better, so they're not I playing guess. them, they're, they're teaching them. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's three guys who go, Berg and two other players, Lefty O'Duel and Ted Lyons went over to teach these seminars. Cool. O'Duel and Lyons returned to America once the assignment was over, but Berg stayed behind and explored more of Japan and eventually also toured Manchuria, Shanghai, Beijing, areas of Indochina, Siam, which is Thailand, India, Egypt, and even went to Berlin. Okay, so he took the long way home. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, despite a desire to return to Japan, Moberg reluctantly reported for Senator's camp on February 26, 1933. Berg played 40 home games that 40 games that year, bat 185. The Senators won the pennant but lost the World Series to the New York Giants. And then in 1934, Berg was again named the starting catcher, but this time by circumstance, the 1933 starter Cliff Bolton had demanded more of Griffith's money, and when the senator's owner refused, Bolton elected to sit out. Okay. So, so Berg, by happenstance, is, is like, here you go, Mo. Yep. You're the starter again. Yeah, it's a shit year last year, but we almost won the World Series. Yeah. And here's a fun fact. On April 22nd of that year, Mo made his first fielding error since 1932, oh. which ended his American League record streak of 117 games without an error. That's pretty darn good. Right, yeah. I imagine that. I feel like that's been broken by now. But I, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe not. Who knows? Either we way, didn't really look that up. But good effort, Mo. You yeah. didn't. You did well. Yeah. <laughs> Enough just, that we would highlight it. Yeah. <laughs> no matter if it's been broken or not. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but on July 25th, he was released again. But he quickly returned to Cleveland, whose catcher Glenn Myatt had suffered a broken angle, and he was reunited with Walter Johnson, who had managed Berg in 1932. Nice. So he's just following disaster catchers. Pretty much. He just around. keeps he just keeps getting these backup jobs every time a guy gets hurt. He's you know, like, like Jeff Mathis of his yeah of his era. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Uh, but then he became the starter again when Frankie uh, Pitlack got injured. Mm-hmm. So he's just you know moving up the depth chart. So now here is where things start to get a little more interesting. In 1934, Herb Hunter is at it again, and this time he's organizing a tour of All-Stars to play a bunch of exhibition games around Japan. And uh, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Jimmy Fox, and Lefty Gomez are on the team, just to name a few. Uh, So even though Berg was a third-string catcher, he's invited on this trip, probably because of his language skills i'm assuming well, you know been and there he, he, i mean yeah and he went yeah. on this tour before so he has this relationship with hunter um you know when he when the team arrived he made a welcome speech in japanese yeah like who knows how good that was he might have been butchering it completely <laughs> but anyway he makes the effort babe ruth <laughs> is Sultan yeah. swatting you yeah. with bat. Yeah. He will bash your face. <laughs> That's the broken translation. <laughs> uh, but 
Anyway, maybe not. He was invited to address the Japanese legislature as well. Okay. I'm assuming he was pretty good at speaking Japanese. Yeah, yeah. Moberg wasn't just there to play baseball and make speeches, though. He also had a contract with a New York City newsreel company called Movie Tone News to film sights from his trip, and Mo took with him a 16mm Bell and Howell movie camera. Okay. So he's traveling around with this camera filming stuff. Yeah. Uh, on November 9th, while the rest of the team was playing in Omiya, Moberg allegedly dressed himself in a black kimono and went to the St. Luke's Hospital in Tsukiji. All right. It was one of the tallest buildings in Tokyo. Okay. So he goes there with this kimono. He's probably hiding the camera under the kimono, I'm assuming. He's got these flowers. And he goes up and he makes up this story that he was there to visit the daughter of the American ambassador, Joseph Grew. Mm-hmm. His daughter was apparent. I think his daughter was actually there, so that's not made up, but she was there to, like, ha- she had a baby. Uh, and I imagine he, you know, knew that or somehow had figured, had learned that. So okay. he was using that as a story. So he shows up with flowers uh-huh. and he's like, I'm here to see, you know, Joseph Grew's daughter or Joseph Grew's grandchild or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they let him in, but he doesn't go and see her. He sneaks up to the roof with his camera, and he takes a bunch of footage that shows the entire layout of the city of Tokyo and shots of the harbor. Well, he's just a traveling guy. I'm sure he just wanted to show everybody back home. (laughs) This is the entire city that I saw, you know. Hey, Dad, I know you're really into pharmaceuticals, but do you want to look at all of the sites in Japan that possibly could be important. <laughs> <laughs> so while he's in Japan, Cleveland releases him. What the f- Oh, okay. It's the off-season, right? Yeah, I guess. And he then continued to travel to the Philippines, Korea, and Moscow. But he's still not done with baseball. So he returns home, and for the 1935 season, he is picked up by the Boston Red Sox. And he's the third-string catcher again, he played five seasons with the Red Sox, averaging less than 30 games a season. And he retired from playing in 1939 after a 15-year career in which Berg got into just 662 games, but he'd undoubtedly left an impact on the game and was well-respected despite his brain sometimes rubbing the less educated teammates the wrong way. I get that. So, yeah. So he basically, yeah, he averaged like 40 games a year. Yeah. For 15 year career. That's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine you could do that today. And once again, I don't know if you could do that today. Jeff Mathis. Look, <laughs> I mean, he's not, he's, yeah, he's not like a third. I mean, that, that's, that's, I mean, Yancy. Jan Gomes. I don't think Gomes has been around for 15 years now, but he's been yeah. around for about 10. No. Well, he was a starter for, like, a pretty solid starter for but a few years a, there. Well, Mo, Mo started a couple yeah. of years yeah, and true. had a couple good years, but for the most of that 15 years, he was a second or third string guy. That's true. That's yeah. true. We're digressing. Yeah, I know. Uh, here's a story about how he rubbed some guys the wrong way. One time in Berg's <laughs> days with the Senators in Washington, Mo's teammate and roomie Dave Harris was feeling sick, and Berg told him, quote, you're doing poorly. Stick out your tongue. <laughs> Harris did, and Berg told him he was, quote, suffering from a bit of intestinal fortitude. I don't know what that means. It's just like a... It's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. The next day, Harris embarrassingly told reporters that 
he had, quote, shaken off a bout of intestinal fortitude. <laughs> and when he realized the prank, he told Berg, quote, Mo, I can drive in more runs in a month than you smart guys can think across all season. Oh. <laughs> The beginning of the analytics voice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first quote. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Berg coached in Boston for two years, and in his first season in 1940, Ted Williams came to Moe for some advice and wondered what made guys like Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth so great. And he told the kid, quote, Gehrig would wait and wait until he hit the ball almost out of the catcher's glove. As to Ruth, he had no weaknesses. He had a good eye and laid off pitches out of the strike zone. He also said, Ted, you most resemble a hitter like Shoeless Joe Jackson, but you are better than all of them. When it comes to wrists, you have the best. Fucking wrist compliments, bro. Yeah. <laughs> wrists are key to hitting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, honestly, work those wrists, kids. Yeah. Yep. Strong wrists. Strong wrists. That's right. Very important for hitting. But, as I mentioned, he was only a coach for two seasons. But why? He was smart, respected. He spoke several languages. When does he become a lawyer? I've all of a sudden turned into his father. He was very observant and adventurous. All skills that would make a pretty good coach, right? Yes, or a lawyer. Or a lawyer. his parents wanted. (laughs) Well, all of these skills combined with Berg's quiet resolve would also make him the perfect candidate to become an American spy. All right, I feel <laughs> like you were alluding to this by that whole camera thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like he's already been a spy at this point. No, he's just like, I think he just like wants to maybe be a spy or he's just like, you know, this might be, he's smart enough to know like, this might be important. You know, so, I was going to ask you, because you're kind of like a war history buff, like, sure. what was the relations like between America and Japan in, like, the early 30s? In the early 30s, it was, uh, I, I guess, congenial? Like, is that the, like, they were... They I were, mean, obviously, they were, like, letting them come for these baseball tours and everything, so it couldn't have been, like, that much animosity. No, but well that's the thing is is America America initially throughout the early 1930s uh, definitely was a major trading partner with the Japanese. And it wasn't until I, I believe the wars in Manchuria and stuff in 1937-1938 like that's when uh, America really, you know, started you know, there was a public outcry. So mm-hmm. at that point, yeah. So I would say when Moberg went to Japan in 1932, 32, 33, whatever, like at that point there was, there was good, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't say good relationships, but I wouldn't say bad relationships. Like mm-hmm. they were, they were chill with each other. <laughs> they okay. traded, they were trade partners. Okay. You know, um, they weren't that worried. America had a lot of, anyways, I'm not going anyway, to just we're, keep we're, go, yeah, we're keep getting going, out of time. So, How does one become a spy, though? Well, Berg was a bit of an outcast in Princeton, as I said, but he was somewhat of a charmer at Columbia, Mm -hmm. and this brought him into friendship with Nelson Rockefeller. Okay. Whose family uh, donated a lot of money to Columbia. Yeah, no, I I understand who the Rockefellers are. How do you become a spy? No, a super rich family. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm just mentioning that, like, that's how Rockefeller, I'm not sure if Rockefeller was actually in uh, Berg's law class or not, because he was actually about six years younger, I think. Mm. 
So, but Berg was, you know, slowly picking away at his degree. So, you know, maybe they were in the same class at certain points. Yeah. But either way, just, you know. He's a baseball player, too. Exactly. He's he's a bit of a celebrity, even if he's a backup catcher. Yeah. Yeah. So, in 1940, Rockefeller was appointed to the new position of Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs in the office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs after expressing concern to FDR over Nazi influence in Latin America. Ooh. So Moe's old college buddy, Nelson, is running this department that's like one of the, sort of one of the precursors to the CIA. Yeah. And he's like, you know who'd be good for this? Moe. <laughs> So, less than a month after Pearl Harbor, and just nine days after his father Bernard died, Moberg accepted a position with the OIAA on January 5th, 1942. Uh, The OIAA. All right. Yes. So, in August of that year, 1942, Mo went out on his first assignments to the Caribbean and South America, where his job was to monitor the health and physical fitness of the American troops stationed down there. So, it seems they're just kind of easing them in, maybe. Yeah. Go watch guys do push-ups for a while. Or also, maybe they just, like, started this department. They don't really know what the fuck to do yet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean... I think I think you got a point there as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so he does that for about six months until he comes home in February of 1943. And then in June of 1943, he and some other spies leave the office because they believe their talents could be better used elsewhere. Yeah. So we're like, this is dumb. We're not really spying on it. <laughs> we're just watching our own guys work out. It's Rockefeller told me to spy on a sandwich the other day. <laughs> Yeah. Old Nelly wants a calzone. <laughs> so in August 1943, Berg joins the OSS, which does eventually become, become the CIA. Yeah, I was wondering about that first one. I was like, that's not... I, yeah. I was trying to remember the acronym, and OSS mm-hmm. is the one. Yeah. Yes. So he was in the Special Operations Branch, mm-hmm. and he had a salary of $3,800. So it's less than what the Robins signed him for. Yeah, uh, initially. Yeah. Yeah. So Berg was a paramilitary operations officer and took a seat at the OSS Balkans desk in Washington, where he remotely monitored the situation in Yugoslavia. Ooh. In this position, he would prepare Slavic Americans in the OSS for dangerous parachute missions that gathered intel regarding the strengths of the Chetniks, Loyal to King Peter, who were led by Draza Milhalovich. There you go. And communist partisans led by Joseph Braz, who was also known as Tito, in their fight against Germany. All right. So, like, basically, their job is to go there and find out which which one of these two resistances against Germany is is better, and then we're going to support that one. Okay, so he's prepping. He's like, hey... You're going to go drop into Yugoslavia. Yeah. <laughs> so he's coaching days of like, you're going to call a curveball if you yeah, see him exactly. swing like that. Like, yeah, exactly. Okay, you're going to jump out of a plane and then figure out which two of these militias is the best one for our country to support. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, cool, that's a great job. Exactly. <laughs> so after deliberation, he felt that Tito's partisans were superior and he had the backing of the Yugoslav people. And so Berg recommended that they get more aid. Yeah, okay. Yeah, this guy changed history. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. 
<laughs> yeah. 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 And that's not even the most famous one. Oh, my God. Uh, okay. In going, late right. 1943, Moe was assigned to, pro- to Project Larson. He was to kidnap Italian rocket and missile specialists in Italy and bring them back to the U.S. That's awesome. <laughs> I would love my country to tell me to kidnap somebody. <laughs> like, I mean, I wouldn't hurt them, but it would yeah. just be fun. <laughs> okay, that's, that sounds terrible. <laughs> you sound like a fucking sociopath. I haven't slept a lot this weekend. <laughs> It would be fun to play out video game missions yeah. in real life if nobody could possibly get hurt. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Okay. okay, continue. Well, the scientists were then to be interviewed and interrogated for information on Werner Heisenberg and Carl Friedrich Weissacker, von Weissacker. Okay. And then from May to December of 1944, Moberg hopped around Europe under a number of aliases, and in early December, word surfaced that Heisenberg was giving a lecture in Zurich. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so the OSS assigned Berg to attend the lecture and gather intel and determine how close the Nazis were to constructing an atomic bomb. Holy shit. Okay. So he is now in Europe. Yeah. He's been there for a while. He's been there since May. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, no, okay. I'm just but, but now it's December and they're like, yo, Heisenberg's giving this lecture in Switzerland, so get over there. And okay, so Switzerland okay, I got this. Let's go. Yeah, so he goes there and he disguises himself as a uh, German businessman. <laughs> My name is Runt Wolf. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Comes right around. Uh, so he has these instructions that said if anything Heisenberg said convinced him that the Germans were close to a bomb, he was to assassinate Heisenberg. He was supposed to shoot him with a pistol. Holy shit. And then he was to take a cyanide pill to avoid capture. All right. Well, I don't like... I don't I don't want to kidnap people for my government. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Berg ultimately decided that the Germans were not close enough, so both he and Heisenberg left the lecture hall unharmed. I mean... He might have just been like, yeah, they're not that close, fuck that, I'm not taking the pill. I mean, you really have to trust someone to give that, like, option to them. Like, here's the thing, man. You got two options here. One, you just go to this lecture. You go home, you grab a cup of coffee maybe on the way. You sit outside in, 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 in wherever you are in Switzerland. Have some See, crepes maybe. Maybe have some crepes on the way home. Okay, number two. Number two. Here, you gotta really listen to this one. If you think that they really have all the info, just fucking shoot them and then just kill yourself. All right? That, those, that's simple. Those are your only two options. That, that's it. Nothing else. <laughs> the world is black and white. <laughs> Uh, so this was Berg's most famous mission and one of his last well-known ones. He left the OSS after the war was over and retired in January of 1946. I would, too. <laughs> yeah, like... yeah, they were like, okay, Berg. <laughs> they keep sending you on missions where they're like, take this pill. <laughs> I mean, I get it's really, you know, contextually, it's like, if if the Germans had an atomic weapon... By shooting Heisenberg and killing yourself, you might be saving hundreds of thousands of people. 
Well, you going to trust that information? Yeah. <laughs> like, I want to know. Well, I mean, I'm just, I don't. I don't think you have that. I'm like, I want to know how much he knew about nuclear science. Yeah, to be tasked with. I don't think you know. That, I mean, he though. might have known a bit based yeah. on he, you know, enrolled in 32 classes in the off season one year. But anyway, oh, uh, God. so he retires in 1946. But then Berg in 1951 wrote in his notebook, "Quote: A Jew must do this." and begged the CIA, which had now replaced the OSS, to hire him again and send him on assignment to the newly formed nation of Israel. Okay. But the CIA denied him. Oh. So they're like, no, man, you're, you're too old. Yeah. Uh, but finally, in 1952, Mo was hired for his World War II contacts as the CIA was gathering info on the Soviet atomic bomb projects. So he, like, wasn't sent anywhere. It was just agents were, like, coming to him for Advice. info every time. Yeah, yeah. For, and every and once in a while. Who was this that you talked to back in the, yeah. the 40s or yeah. whatever? Yeah. Because, yeah, okay, I, I get what's going on. And at this point, sorry if I, he was born in the 1890s? 1902. Oh, 1902. His father moved there in the 1890s. Okay, so he's he's not, he's 50-ish. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, So um, he was paid $10,000 for this, plus expenses. Mm-hmm. But the CIA received no usable information, and the officer assigned to meet with Berg after he returned from Europe described Mo as flaky. Okay. Which was a characteristic that Mo had his whole life, it seems. Mm-hmm. This is kind of described in uh, Ralph Berger's Sabre article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bit of, a, bit of a loner, bit of a flake, bit of a... Meh. Yeah, and I got a quote from the article right here. Quote, cool. Mo would appear from nowhere and just as suddenly disappear... It was his nature. He wanted to be free of obligations such as deep relationships with other people. Granted, he was charming and witty, but he always shrouded himself. He was the perfect man to be a spy because he revealed little about himself. His innermost feelings were as thoroughly classified as his spy activities. Yeah, I guess it would be, yeah. And, and I think that was really, from his sister. I think his sister said that. Well, yeah, and you haven't really mentioned any, like, wife or kids or anything. No, no, I was going to say, like, he was mis- kind of distant from relationships like that. There apparently was a woman, I forget her name, but she kind of, I think they had sort of like an on and off relationship for, like, 11 years or something like that. But she eventually was just like, fuck this, I'm not waiting for this guy. And she, like, married a doctor or something like that. Oh, yeah, she was probably like, when are you going to become a lawyer? You've been a baseball player and now you're a spy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) When are you going to grow up, Mo? Yeah, yeah. Never. (laughs) (laughs) And he never did really grow up because for the next 17 years, Berg lived with his older brother. Samuel and eventually became somewhat of a burden to him when people would ask what he did for a living he would press his index finger to his lips and say shh <laughs> <laughs> implying that he was shit. still a spy <laughs> but he wasn't I mean maybe he was just living off the pension from you know <laughs> yeah, I mean but like still, don't read my newspaper <laughs> yeah, yeah. just Screams, but he shushes them yeah, and yells about yeah. newspapers. <laughs> he held no real job in these times, and he was a lifelong bachelor and never married, as we just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samuel said that after the war, that Mo became short fused and seemed lost. He appeared directionless and lived only for his books and newspapers. <laughs> 
which no one else could touch. <laughs> yeah. Berg was a Mets fan in his later years and could often be seen sitting alone in the right field stands. Seventeen years, though, were too many for Brother Sam, who asked Mo to leave after growing tired of all the piling up books and newspapers. But like, I can't fucking touch any of these. Like, <laughs> You're 64 years old. <laughs> Get out of my house. Don't touch my papers. I haven't read those ones yet. Shut up, Mo. Yeah, Just gonna, shut up. Did you touch those? All right, fuck it. I got to go get more. <laughs> it's snowing. <laughs> That's to you. <laughs> so Mo did not move at first, though, and it took to Sam two servings of eviction papers before he was rid of his younger brother. Oh, my God. This is just a pain in the ass by the sound yeah. of everything. So in 1972, Mo fell at home at the age... Or Sorry, I missed the line here. <laughs> Mo moved in with, his, with their sister Ethel for a few years at the point at this point and it was again not all that pleasant has he thought about maybe his own place <laughs> apparently not <laughs> apparently not in 1972 mo fell at home at the age of 70 and eventually succumbed to his injuries on may 29th 1972 in hospital in belleville new jersey a nurse at the hospital recalled that mo berg's final words were quote how did the mets do today Fuck yeah. I mean, it's super awesome he became a Mets fan. At least he got to see the, whatever, the 69, 68 season. <laughs> yeah, yeah six, 69. 69, that's right. They yeah. won that day, Well, if, if you care to know. Did she tell him that? Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe. <laughs> oh, it's, what are, how the Mets do? No one knows, Mo. Yeah. You're about to die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No one cares, dude. <laughs> Just sure. shitting on Mo. Oh my God, no. <laughs> Here we go. Here, we're not going to shit on him here. After he passed, his sister Ethel requested and accepted on Moe's behalf the Medal of Freedom, which she donated to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Moe had denied to accept the award after the war with no public explanation. He's kind of a weird guy. Yeah. Uh, I'll explain a little bit more about that in a second. But the citation says, Mr. Morris Berg, United States civilian, rendered exceptionally meritorious service of high value to the war effort from April 1944 to January 1946. In a position of responsibility in the European theater, he exhibited analytical abilities and a keen planning mind. He inspired both respect and constant high-level endeavor on the part of his subordinates, which enabled his section to produce studies and analysis vital to the mounting of american operations you're good for him yeah so he gets a nice pat on the back posthumously there or whatever yeah. sister finally is like give i'll get mo's award don't worry about him he's 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 don't worry about his pride and i'll mention his pride too like he was writing memoirs in 1960 i think okay. it was around 1960 and he had like a like a co-writer uh -huh. and apparently the co-writer confused him with mo howard of the three stooges and he was like go fuck yourself i'm not working i'm not working we're not writing a book anymore when do we get to the funny part <laughs> yeah yeah exactly when do you meet the other two guys what do you mean yeah. The guys I went to Japan with? No. <laughs> the short fat guy and the tall How skinny How do you guy. miscommunicate that I much? Don't. How do you get to the point where you're like putting pen to paper and someone's like, okay, so, so have you been into theater your whole life? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just some asshole being presumptuous because it's like two Jewish guys named Mo, I think. Oh, probably. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so, oh, anyway, but, uh, but, but yeah, there's, I also just want to quickly mention, I should watch, there's a movie, there's a Paul Rudd movie, so like an IFC Paul Rudd movie called The Catcher Was a Spy, I which know. is also the name of the book. Oh, yeah. you know about this. This is the okay. first time you've brought me a story. That you know about. And I've only seen the movie. Right. I've read nothing else. Right, okay. It, it was on my list for ideas. I had... You brought me so much more insight than that fucking movie. <laughs> Decent movie. Paul Rudd, he normally picks good scripts. But mm-hmm. honestly, did you, did you watch the movie? No, I haven't watched the movie yet. It was on Netflix a little a little while ago. Anyways, it, it, I watched it probably three years ago. It was It was okay. I just remember he was a spy, <laughs> and he played baseball. And it was a true story, and I wrote it down to research it later, and now I don't have to because you did. You don't did. have to because I did. And that's the story of Moberg, who changed the course of the entire world's history completely. You know? Wow. Complete influence on the direction of World War II, so. Holy shit. No, I, and, and uh, I mean, I love the, the insight into his, his younger days, and... Uh, Honestly, if you asked me about Moberg, if you were like, what team did he play for? I honestly thought he played for Brooklyn like his whole career. No, five different teams, 15 years, man. I had no idea. It was a middle career switch in the middle, got him uh, an extra decade. No, I had no idea. I had no idea what baseball teams. He, I knew he was a professional baseball player. I knew he he, he served in, in, with the OSS during, during World War II. Uh, I knew Paul Rudd portrayed him. <laughs> But thanks for filling in the rest. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. All right. Oh, fuck yeah. Well, thanks so much uh, for listening to us. Give us a follow at Doing Baseball on Twitter and at Doing Dot Baseball. Give us a review of whatever rating or whatever. Um, we are, might take a break. We might have a rerun episode coming. Uh, I, I'm uh, a little bit busy these next couple weeks uh, doing, uh, doing the whole uh, wedding thing. So... I appreciate everybody for listening. Uh, I, I, we might just play the Savannah Bananas episode because Etsy's wearing that sick we Savannah as well. That I sounds know. like a great one to play. Yeah, we might have some for you in two weeks. We might not. Uh, regardless, keep tuning in. We'll have lots more stories coming in the near future. And until then, I'm Sean. And I'm Eds. And we're doing the baseball. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.